Hey everyone, welcome to the Bulletproof Hygiene Podcast, where mistakes are welcome, nothing is off limits, and growth is inevitable. I am Sharissa Wood. I'm Brittany Simon. And we are putting our brains together to bring you the tools you need to elevate your hygiene practice, build amazing team culture, and provide patients with the very best care. Our mission is to help empower and equip every hygienist to practice purposeful, profitable hygiene. We look to guide you on your journey towards career fulfillment by providing support, collaboration, and community to our profession. As two of the top producing hygienists in the country, we know firsthand that these things lead to sustainable and fulfilling practice and the happy side effect of high profitability. So let's get to it. Welcome back to another episode of the Bulletproof Hygiene Podcast. Today, I have the immense pleasure of interviewing our own Spodak oral and maxillofacial surgeon, Dr. Jason Sheik, about pre-medical guidelines, uh, medical clearance, as well as how to respond to and reduce risk for medical emergencies in the dental office. So Dr. Sheik, I want to give the listeners some insight into who you are and why you are an expert on these things. So Dr. Jason Sheik is a Florida native who was born and raised in Boynton Beach. He attended the University of Miami for his undergraduate studies, continuing on to receive his dental degree at the University of Pennsylvania and his medical degree at the Econ School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. Did I say that correctly? Is it Econ? Uh, Icon. Icon, okay. He completed his training as an oral and maxillofacial surgeon in a six-year residency at the Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City before continuing on to complete a fellowship in cleft and pediatric craniofacial surgery in Charleston, West Virginia. Dr. Sheik is actively involved in the community and has recently attended multiple mission trips to Mexico, Nicaragua, Bolivia, and Guatemala with the goal to provide care to those who otherwise would not have access to it. He enjoys the challenge of providing care to a range of patients who have medically complex cases and looks forward to helping all of his patients achieve their SMILE goals. His academic achievements have included writing multiple manuscripts and presentations on pediatric pathology and trauma, and he has also been published in the Journal of Oral and Maxillofacial Surgery and Clinics of Oral and Maxillofacial Surgery. So thanks so much for devoting some of your valuable time with us today, Dr. Sheik. Uh, I want to, before we really jump in, I, I want to provide some data and information about some of the most common medical emergencies in a dental office, and then we're going to kind of circle back and pick your brain about how we can apply some practical things for preventing and solving these issues when they do occur. So according to the British Medical Journal, medical emergencies that have occurred in dental practices include vasovagal syncope, angina, hypoglycemia, epileptic seizures, choking, asthma, anaphylaxis, and cardiac arrest. It's estimated that on average, a general dental practitioner, GDP, will experience a medical emergency at least once every two years. Vasovagal syncope is the most common emergency encountered. And interestingly, one study showed that 4.8% of all general dental practitioners observed the the crazy number of 22% of all syncopes, and that the prevalence of vasovagal syncope tends to decrease with professional experience, so patient management. Risk management can play an important role in reducing the risk of medical emergencies in the dental practice, and it's therefore recommended that all primary care dental facilities have a process for medical risk assessment for their patients. Anticipation of potential medical emergencies that may arise should be highlighted by taking a thorough medical history, which is revised, updated, and checked each time the patient presents for treatment. It's been suggested that the presence of an updated medical history may help to minimize the risk of a medical emergency occurring. According to the American Family Physician Journal, 
A medical consultation in preparation for a dental procedure should include the patient's medical conditions, treatment plans, and current levels of management, any resuscitation directives, and any history of therapy with bisphosphonates or any anti-resorptive drugs, anti-angio, <laughs> let me say that again, anti-angiogenic drugs or head and neck radiation. A history of orthopedic joint replacement is not an automatic indication for prophylactic antibiotics and physicians should consider discontinuing routine procedural antibiotic prophylaxis after discussing risks and benefits with patients. Consider postponing elective dental treatments for six weeks after myocardial infarction or bare metal stent placement and for six months after drug-eluting stent placement, and consider optimizing a patient's oral health before initiation of chemotherapy or head and neck radiation to avoid as adverse sequelae. And that's just some general guidelines or information that I found to kind of summarize some of the major risk points in our profession, right? Um, so the basics having been kind of established here, I want to clear up and kind of hear from you, what exactly are the most current guidelines for prophylactic pre-med regarding total joint replacement and endocarditis? So these have been changed, I'm sure, several times as you've been practicing and definitely several times in the last 11 years that I've been practicing. And I want to make sure that we're all completely up to date and on the same page. Well, I'm really happy. Happy to be with you, Brittany. I think this is an awesome opportunity to sort of um, continue to foster conversations that we have within our practice and sort of, you know, lean on each other's experience and also, you know, knowledge base and resources to sort of like clear up uh, areas that are confusing. And given that multiple different organizations weigh in on a lot of these decisions and a lot of these recommendations, it sometimes can be confusing. Um, the, I would I always try to start with um, the organization um, or governing body um, that uh, is most closely related with the given condition that we're helping to manage. Um, so for instance, with um, prophylaxis for endocarditis, um, I go directly to the American Heart Association guidelines. Um, uh, they haven't changed dramatically in the last couple of years, um, but during my practice time, uh, we went from pre-medicating patients uh, who had um, mitral valve prolapse with regurgitation uh, to a more conservative opinion, which is now the standard, which is there are only five conditions uh, where there's a current recommendation for pre-medication for infective endocarditis prophylaxis. And uh, those are a uh, unrepaired cyanotic uh, cardiac condition from birth a repaired cyanotic uh, uh, cardiac condition uh, with uh, artificial material, um, which also falls into the third category, which is a um, valve replacement uh, with an artificial valve. Um, uh, the next condition is a history of infective endocarditis, and the last is a cardiac transplant. Um, what can be confusing is that different organizations will have variations of these recommendations, but I think you can be safe in focusing on those five uh, as your baseline be, uh, before any dental care. Okay. So regarding, so none of it anymore is regarding joint replacements or it, is what you just, mm -hmm. just, it, is that a separate kind of section? Right. That's a separate section. So those are the American Heart Association guidelines with regard to cardiac conditions that require uh, pre-medication with an antibiotic. Um, when, you, when we're looking at uh, pre-medication for a joint replacement, um, the recommendation historically has been a little bit confusing, even to those of us in, um, you know, who've gone to medical school. 
Um, the main governing body for the uh, for the orthopedic surgeon is, is the AAOS, American Academy of Orthopedic Surgery. Um, uh, they've uh, condensed the recommendation into a tree of options. And I'm sorry, it's black and white, but you can actually go on their website, aaos.org. Um, and there's a care decision tree as to what's appropriate versus maybe appropriate and rarely appropriate for pre-medication. And I tried to uh, simplify this in my mind a little bit. If the patient's less than a year out from their surgery, there's in general an elevated risk of uh, uh, infection that could affect the joint. So there's a lower threshold for pre-medicating. Um, the, um, the recommendation is for patients that are at heightened risk for infection, so an uncontrolled diabetic um, or a diabetic with an unknown level of control, they recommend uh, more strongly uh, pre-medicating the patient. After a year, those uh, recommendations become um, less stringent in terms of uh, the importance of pre-medicating. So I, I think for the use of your, um, uh, for the benefit rather of your listeners, um, under a year's time, I was always lean on the recommendation of the individual orthopedic surgeon. After a year's time, it's less of an importance um, unless there's some underlying health issues that would put the patient at increased risk for infection or more serious infection. Got it. Okay, thank you. That's a really helpful summary, actually, and probably the most concise one I have heard because it does get very hairy regarding the the um, governing organizations and who to go to for what particular thing. So thank you for that. Um, my next question is, what are the most common medical emergencies that you have encountered in your practice? Along the lines of what you had mentioned, uh, syncable episodes are probably the most common thing that I've seen in the practice, um, uh, which is in line with sort of the data that you presented. Uh, single episode, if you try to look at the basic biology of the process, is a decrease in blood flow to the head and ultimately to the brain. Um, the body has uh, mechanisms for compensating for decreases in blood pressure, um, which include increasing the heart rate, um, constricting the peripheral blood vessels to get, get blood to the brain. Um, in a syncopal episode, you have to think of it as the pump is not working as effectively, so the heart rate is slowing down, and that constriction of the blood in the peripheral part of the body and the legs in particular um, has decreased. So you have vasodilation, basically blood collecting in the veins and the extremities. Um, all that has the impact of decreasing blood flow to the head, and that leads to you know, the experience of fatigue, restlessness, um, pale uh, color to the patient, and uh, you know, potentially loss of consciousness. Gotcha. Um, so we have all obviously taken basic life support. It's required for us every biennium. So how can we treat? Well, actually, let's let's do this. Since we're talking about syncope now, what does it look like when you are managing a syncopal episode? Like what, what is the first thing you do? What are the easy practical steps that we can take? And then the follow through that we should do to treat that? I think the first thing is an awareness of the situation. So you're you're constantly monitoring, watching your patient. So you'll see that they can get sweaty, um, they'll lose color, um, they'll uh, express confusion or be unsettled. Um, 
immediately in that situation, um, we're trying to compensate for the for that pooling of blood in the extremities. So you want to lay the patient back, um, elevate the legs, um, basically um, yeah, put the head lower relative to the to the um, uh, to the legs and try to you know physically shunt blood back to the head. Um, also, you want to protect the patient from injuring themselves. So um, very quickly, within the first 15 to 30 seconds, the patient can manifest some symptoms almost like a seizure um, and can have constriction of the extremities, shaking, movement. Um, unlike a seizure, this is pretty short-lived as blood is then beginning to return to the head um, once you've laid them flat. Um, so in the dental chair, obviously, we can uh, you know, put them back in the chair and put something under the legs. If they're sitting in a chair or at the doorway or out of your chair, then laying them on the floor um, carefully would be the most important thing. Okay. And then when they come back, like what are the most safe things, the most practical things we can do to make sure that they are okay before they leave the practice? And how should they leave? Should they then have a driver? You know, should, what does the follow-up look like, the follow-up phone calls and so on and so forth? Um, for most of the basic problems we face in the office, monitoring them for at least half an hour is uh, uh, is a good starting point. Um, if you have a monitor available, like we do in the oral surgery clinic, we can monitor their vitals, um, keep a good record of what's going on. Um, in general, with vasovagal syncope, they'll recover uh, pretty rapidly in the first 10 or 15 minutes. Um, but it is important to monitor them and have someone with them. And if they drove themselves to the office, having someone else drive them home, another family member come to see them, uh, I think would be a good idea. Okay. And then, you know, like I was saying before, we've all taken basic life support. So we know how to treat, you know, someone who is choking or someone who has suffered cardiac arrest. Um, but I want to talk practically about what we can do when some other common medical emergencies happen. So we already kind of covered the syncopal episode. Um, but what if someone is suffering hypoglycemia? Like what do those steps look like in our chair, in our practice? Uh, a lot of this starts with a good medical history. So um, if a patient comes in and is giving you a history of diabetes, um, recent changes in their diabetes medication or episodes of having become hypoglycemic previously, uh, you have to have a low suspicion uh, that that could be what's happening in your chair if they're experiencing confusion, um, the uh, uh, and just an uneasiness. Uh, the uh, uh, oftentimes asking the patient whether they've had food that morning or you know what their diet has been like or what their medications have been like is a good starting point. Um, we use the term making the patient sweet, but giving them some source of glucose in that situation is always uh, a low risk intervention um, in a setting where you have a, you know, a suspicion that hypoglycemia could be a contributing cause of their symptoms. Um, and then your options for that, obviously, in your emergency kit, and I brought one from one of my offices here. Um, you may have a tube of, uh, of glucose that you can give to the patient. It's important ahead of time though to read the directions because I didn't realize um, uh, oftentimes uh, they can vary uh, in this particular tube. Uh, you know, the recommendation is to basically give the patient the full tube of uh, paste into the mouth and have them swallow that. Um, 
Other uh, options would be, you know, a sublingual uh, a glucose tablet or uh, potentially a liquid as well. Um, but if you have something like this in the office, it's a good starting point. Okay. And then what do some of like the early and progressive signs look like when someone might be suffering hypoglycemia? Uh, but initially, it's going to be con confusion, um, altered mental status, uh, the uh, uh, diaphoresis, sort of like sweating as we had experienced with the syncopal episode. So that's where the confusion lies uh, sometimes in differentiating between the two. Mm -hmm. um, in general, hypoglycemia uh, is a slower onset process than vasovagal syncope. So that's how you know, between the two things we've discussed so far, just the timing uh, in my mind, you know, would send me in one direction versus the other. Okay. Thank you for clarifying that. Um, let's move on to a seizure disorder. If someone is having a seizure in our chair, how should we, how can we recognize? I know that there are a lot of different types of seizures. Um, some of them are more overt and some are more covert. So what signs and symptoms can we look for regarding seizures and preparing for someone who potentially is going to have a seizure and then kind of walk us through managing an, an episode like that? Um, the majority of our patients that have a seizure are, are likely to have a seizure in the office or those that have a history of seizures. And many of those patients are already being followed or managed. So again, we're starting with taking a good history. Uh, and if the patient states that they've had seizures in the past, yeah, you can ask what are their triggers, what, uh, what type of symptoms have they had, how has it been managed, what medications they're on, and to what degree they have a level of control of, uh, uh, of the seizures. Um, there's a range of symptoms that can be associated with seizure, uh, extending from uh, you know, the tonic-clonic type seizures where there's rigidity and movement, um, uh, in cases where uh, there's a lot of uh, you know, uncontrolled movement of the patient, uh, protecting them from injury is the most important thing. Um, recommendations have shifted away from any type of uh, uh, intervention for their airway in terms of placing anything in the mouth or um, uh, the, the main thing is getting anything out of the way that would potentially injure them, you know, such as dental instruments or a tray or arms of our chair that may be extended over them and just making sure that they're in a position where they're not likely to fall or become injured if they're beginning to move more, um, uh, more so than uh, as the seizure progresses. Uh, and then on the other end of the spectrum, you have seizures like obstinate uh, obstinate seizures where it may just be a level of confusion or daisiness or a lack of responsiveness. And uh, with all of those, again, it goes back to just protecting the patient from getting injured, and most of them are self-limited. Um, if you have seizures that are progressing, though, or not stopping after a short period of time, 15 seconds, 30 seconds within the first minute uh, or two, um, then you want to have a low threshold for calling for EMS uh, support. Okay. Okay. Got it. And, and I'm assuming it's discretion, like it's discretion of the healthcare provider or correct me if I'm wrong to call emergency medical services. Like, is that always indicated or is it sometimes indicated or does that the person who is seizing have the option, you know? The, um, it, it's ultimately up to the provider in terms of what you feel is in the best safety of the patient. And, uh, regardless of the extent of the history or how frequent the seizure was, if you have any concern that the patient was injured, you know, had any uh, 
head contact in a rough way or any type of fall, um, or uh, if the seizure episode is continuing all longer than you feel comfortable, or they're having any other associated symptoms in terms of um, uh, continued confusion or breathing problems, then I would have, like I said, a really low threshold for calling uh, 911, calling EMS to have some backup and support. Okay. And we know that a lot of people who, you know, moving on to the next thing, just thinking regarding allergies and reactions to things that we use commonly in dentistry. Um, I know that a lot of people know what their allergies are. And if they have a severe reaction or they, you know, have a, I think it's a type one reaction, anaphylaxis, is that correct? Yeah. So if they have a type one reaction to a certain allergen, they usually know that and have an EpiPen and are prepared for that kind of instance. But, you know, in a case where that is the case or not, if a patient isn't identifying it or can't identify it in time to get their own epinephrine, like how can we then address that emergency? So if a patient has a history of um, an allergic reaction, we're talking about the um, type one or, you know, fast onset uh, type of uh, allergy that could potentially lead to what's most concerning, which is anaphylaxis, which is a systemic response uh, uh, that can impact their airway. Um, having the patient bring their own EpiPen obviously would be a good start. Um, they, may, they may need assistance in administering it though in the midst of that episode. So um, one of the things I really encourage my whole staff and you know, obviously your, um, your listeners as well is become comfortable um, with uh, sort of the range of uh, epinephrine administration products that are available. And obviously EpiPens were not as available in the last few years. So um, they come in all different shapes and sizes. And in some of your emergency medical kits, um, it'll actually even come as a vial. So in the office that I was in today, it comes in a small vial that you have to draw up yourself. Um, so you have to know how much you're going to draw and then how to do that in an emergency setting uh, is going to be really challenging and stressful. So you have to know how much you want to draw up and how you're going to administer it, as well as where you're going to administer it. Um, a lot of the EpiPens will come with a trainer, and this is sort of a different version of the traditional like pen version. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, I, I would definitely recommend trying it out. And there are EpiPens that don't have needles in them that allow you to sort of get the experience of administering it because you want to make sure the dose is, is administered to the patient when you want it to be. Okay. Um, and then, well, I was going to ask, are there any uh, resources you'd recommend like for us to like, there's got to be resources on YouTube or something as to how to learn the dosages and how to make that determination or like, where can we get some training on that? Yeah. Um, basically your, most of your BLS uh, type courses, uh, I believe now will cover some of that, but um, a great resource for everyone who has a question, any area of medicine looking for a um, data-driven uh, and uh, uh, peer-reviewed type of uh, uh, information source is uptodate.com. Um, and that's where I go for information for my patients if it's an area of something that I'm not familiar with. And I think that's a good starting point for this info as well. Okay, thank you. So that was uptodate.com. Thank you so much. Um, and then, you know, the next thing would be angina. And I know that angina, there are different types of angina. I've suffered, suffered from what we think is, I think, called Prinz Metals angina or something like that, where it's like kind of 
uh, we don't know where it came from. You know, it's, we don't know the etiology, you know, we don't know why it's happening. There's no out, there's no like negative repercussion or outcome. There's no physiological reason for it that can be seen on any sort of blood work, x-ray, MRI, you know, and any sort of screening tool or test. Um, but if someone is suffering from chest pain or angina, you know, what do we typically look for besides the person saying, I have chest pain? And I would assume this is always a situation where we would call emergency medical services because we can't diagnose and assess further than what the person is experiencing and their signs and symptoms, right? It all goes back to a good history. So a lot of your patients um, who have a cardiac history or a history of chest pain in the past um, may have something called stable angina, where periodically they're developing symptoms that are characteristic to their particular condition. So um, the challenge is that that may manifest as jaw pain or shoulder pain or chest pain or back pain. Um, there's a whole range of symptoms that may be um, uh, that, that fall into the area of angina. Um, those patients oftentimes will be carrying their own nitroglycerin tablets or on, on medication to, to help with that. Um, uh, in a episode of acute chest pain that's consistent with their underlying uh, condition and their disease process, um, giving them one tablet of nitroglycerin uh, and uh, monitoring them for a response to that is a good initial step without having to immediately um, uh, initiate a call to 911. Um, uh, most patients that are under good control will respond to that, and that potentially can be the end of uh, at the end of the episode. Um, obviously, you want to encourage them to follow up with their primary care doctor, or their internist, or their cardiologist. Um, however, if they don't respond to that initial dose of nitroglycerin, um, after five minutes, you can administer a second dose. Um, but in my practice, I would immediately initiate a call to 911 in that situation, um, just because you, you have to have a low threshold for um, uh, a concern for, uh, for a heart attack developing. Right. Okay. So moving on to, oh, go ahead. Did you have something else? I was going to say for the patient though that's developing um, symptoms for the first time that you can, if you have any concern for heart attack um, uh, in your elderly population where they're having these sort of non-specific chest pain or pain radiating to the shoulder or the jaw, um, sort of like the administration of glucose, giving the first dose of nitroglycerin. Um, if there's uh, no history that would be, you know, limiting to you doing that is a low risk um, intervention. Um, but in that situation where there isn't a history of chest pain and they have risk factors for a heart attack, I would, you know, again, uh, you know, be very quick to dial for EMS 911 in that situation, which is different than the stable intervention of the patient. Right. Okay. So regarding medical clearance for, and, you know, we're talking in our realm about treating patients more invasively in hygiene. So we're not talking about, you know, major surgeries and extractions or, you know, like full mouth reconstructive sort of cases. Um, who needs a medical clearance? Like, you know, the patients I can think of off the top of my head are patients with a history of head and neck radiation, patients who are currently undergoing chemotherapy, patients who are on immunosuppressants, have bleeding disorders, uncontrolled diabetes or HIV. Um, pregnant patients, is there anyone else or is there any kind of easy way that we can remember how to like, remember which patients we need to 
get a clearance for? I think a lot of times we, we have to take a step back and look at what's the overall picture of the patient. Do they look like they're being well managed um, and followed? Um, are the medication lists that they're giving us you know, up to date and accurate? And are they giving you a good reflection of their overall uh, health and stability of the care that they're receiving? Um, so uh, oftentimes patients are coming in and they don't know what medications they're taking or um, their blood work was just fine, but it's, uh, uh, we, we don't really know. And in that situation, uh, giving a call to the nurse practitioner that's taking care of them um, or the, you know, the primary care doc uh, may be worth it, especially in the elderly population that we're serving in South Florida, for instance. Um, likewise, on the other end of the extreme for very young patients, um, uh, if you're dealing with patients with special needs or uh, uh, patients that may have underlying cardiac issues um, in, in a pediatric practice, the same thing applies there. If you're not getting a very clear history, um, I would have a low threshold for picking up the phone and calling the pediatrician. Um, most of the conditions that you mentioned are what we see in, you know, in practice, the diabetes, the hypertension, the, you know, uh, the bypass surgery, um, the uh, patients that are at increased for risk for poor healing, you know, generally are in those categories of uncontrolled diabetics, um, patients that have received chemotherapy recently, um, uh, or ongoing care for, you know, a host of uh, um, uh, more complex conditions that they're seeing specialists for. Um, any, any patient that uh, you know, falls into those categories, I, I think I would have a lower, lower bar to go ahead and send a medical clearance if you have any question or confusion. Okay. Yeah. And generally that's my rule of thumb is to go on the safe side. If I have any question or concern, I, I reach out to the person's practitioner. Um, okay. So the list was pretty inclusive then. Those are really the things. Okay. Yeah. When, uh, when we're in training and assessing patients for anesthesia, um, we use something called a um, ASA classification, where it, it ranges from patients who are ASA one um, with uh, you know no significant uh, health problems um, to more advanced conditions. So you go on to ASA two with well-managed conditions, and then ASA three with potentially multiple conditions or poorly managed conditions. Um, and I think that's a nice sort of global view of categories in the patient populations that you really need to dive into potentially getting medical clearance or those that fall into the ASA3 type category. Um, the, uh, for practical purposes, that, that generally would include, uh, as you just mentioned, your uncontrolled diabetic, your cancer patient, um, or your... Um, you know, a uh, hypertensive or cardiac patient uh, who's on multiple different types of medications or blood thinners. Um, uh, and then obviously your patients who are on active chemotherapy or recent chemotherapy. Okay, thank you. Um, and then what are some of the most common post-operative complications you see in oral surgery or that occur in more advanced dental or hygiene procedures like scaling or like the full mouth or like, you know, different things that we do? Especially with uh, the recent increase in availability of, uh, you know, easy to manage medications uh, for uh, coagulation or clotting problems. So patients that have, have a history of DVT, uh, deep vein thrombosis, or PE, pulmonary embolism, or 
have uh, any type of valve replacement or cardiac stent recently. Um, you'll frequently see patients on a whole host of what 10 years ago were called uh, uh, novel oral anticoagulants. So these are uh, your uh, Xarelto's, Pradaxa's, Eliquis type medications. Um, the uh, as well as your older medications, which fell into the Coumadin or um, uh, or warfarin uh, family. Uh, with all these medications, they increase the risk of postoperative bleeding, which is oftentimes the most common thing that we see in you know uh, the day or days after an oral surgery procedure. But you can also see um, with deep scaling or you know periodontal therapy that you guys may be providing. Um, it's uh, important to sort of anticipate which medications are going to have an increased risk for this. Um, in my experience, uh, patients that are on uh, dual platelet therapies, meaning that uh, they're on an aspirin um, plus a Plavix or another medication in, in the Plavix family, um, they may have some prolonged bleeding on the day of, uh, of the surgery, but then in general, once the bleeding stops, you're not, in, you're not encountering bleeding days later. Um, the challenge with the newer medications, uh, such as Pradaxa or Eliquis or Xarelto, which don't have to be monitored, is that, um, in my experience, some of these patients will end up having bleeding even one or two days or a few days later. Um, uh, so you may get a call that the, the patient's continuing to bleed, you know, two days after they had their deep scaling. And what do you do in, in that particular situation? You know, a good assessment of uh, how much they're bleeding and then um, what, uh, you know, what they've been doing or, uh, even a reach out to their physician in terms of what can be done is worthwhile. Okay. And generally for something like a scaling, would you recommend reaching out to the person's physician to see if they should discontinue the Pradaxa or the, you know, their Eliquis or whatever it is prior to that procedure? Um, that's not something that, you know, I learned in hygiene school. It's not information that's readily available to us or recommended necessarily, but like, being that we're leaning toward, you know, the low threshold for some of these things and, and being on the safe side, is that something that you would recommend generally, or is that not something that is indicated at all for a procedure like scaling, but more so for a more major procedure, a more invasive procedure? Yeah, I, I think what you just said is a, is a good uh, starting point. Um, even when you're calling to speak with the physician, you need to be able to give them a good assessment of how much surgery you're going to be doing. Um, there's a big difference between doing four quadrants of uh, osseous surgery or scaling and replaning versus one quadrant or a localized area of scaling. So one is what what is the risk of postoperative bleeding from the surgery itself? And then there's an assessment of the patient. So um, I even had a patient today who had a history of PE and uh, a pulmonary embolism is a high, um, high risk complication. Um, so with a history of having, you know, multiple uh, pulmonary emboli, um, I'm going to manage the bleeding uh, versus take the risk of, um, or man manage the potential risk for increased bleeding versus taking the risk of a patient having a pulmonary embolism. Um, if the patient has a, a, a history of atrial fibrillation and they're on one of these medications on a purely preventive basis, meaning that they haven't had a clot, they haven't had a stroke, um, then their physician may be willing to take them off of the medication for 
uh, for a, a procedure that's going to be more involved, like, you know, four quadrants of scaling root planning. So I think it's a dialogue that has to be had with the physician, but you have to know and train that, that request for clearance that you're giving them the information they need to, um, tell, to, to give you a recommendation in terms of what to do with the medicine. Okay. Okay. Got it. So when in doubt, just defer to the physician, just make the phone call, pick up the phone, have a dialogue is what it sounds like. Yeah, and uh, historically the recommendation has been not to take the patient off of these medications uh, with few exceptions, um, but my experience having gone to both dental school and medical school is that a lot of physicians don't really have an understanding of the extent of procedures that you or I may be doing for the patient. Uh, mm -hmm. And once that's been clarified, they, they may be um, more, uh, more apt to work with you in terms of a plan for managing their uh, coagulation medication. Okay. Now we know the answer to this question, <laughs> but I'd love to hear it reinforced by you. Um, what would you say the best, what is the best way to prevent medical emergencies in a dental practice? A, a good plan. So it, it starts out by knowing your patient, getting a good history, having a good assessment of, you know, what their overall state of health and then also what, you know, potentially what potential problems could happen. And then also having a plan for managing any, any plans that could come in. Um, we didn't go into it, but um, airway issues or, a, um, uh, you know, worsening symptoms of asthma is really common this time of year. Um, and knowing where your albuterol is and uh, uh, having that available and you know readily available for a patient who's having an asthmatic episode um, is critical. And those are very basic things. Um, if you have uh, oxygen readily available in the office, how do you use the regulator, the controlling valve on the oxygen tank, and how is it set? And, um, like we had talked about with administering epinephrine, do you have an EpiPen or do you have a vial of epinephrine? Um, how do you administer your glucose? All these things are critical ahead of time and really practical. Um, you're more likely to be using, you know, the medications that we just went over than you are to be doing chest compressions in your office. Uh, and, you know, that, that's why sort of having an emergency plan and, you know, reviewing it, uh, uh, along with your team so that you're all comfortable with how to address an emergency is really critical. Okay. And then what are some of the most questions we can ask patients on a medical history to reduce the risk for emergencies? Like we had talked about, ask follow-up questions. Uh, so um, when you get your medical history back and they say, I have a history of asthma, uh, you can ask them, so what medications have you taken? How frequently are you using your inhaler? Um, have you had any hospitalizations or, or episodes of asthma in the, in the dental office or in other settings? Um, we talked about chest pain. You know, what are your symptoms? Um, uh, how have you managed them? How do you respond to um, nitroglycerin? Uh, those types of questions. So ask follow-up questions when you see a patient has listed um, you know, a medical condition, especially something that you know, may pose a risk in your office. Um, then I, I always... Uh, frequently patients will come and see me and say, oh, I don't have any medical problems. And then I look at their medication list and I see that around five different medications. Mm -hmm. um, so that, that's really important as well. You know, follow up with the question, even if they say I have no medical issues, ask them what medications do you take regularly or what medication should you be taking? Because oftentimes also they'll say, 
Yeah, I was on a blood pressure medication, but I just stopped it for insurance reasons or decided that I didn't like, you know, the side effects. And maybe they should be on a, uh, be back on that blood pressure medication. Um, the um, so that's a really helpful area. Uh, and then also uh, go through the rest of the medical history. Have you been recently hospitalized, especially in the older population that we're working with? Um, and if they come in with an aide or a family member, um, if the patient's comfortable asking with you involving them in the conversation, they may be able to shed some light um, on sort of like their general health status and how they've been doing. Maybe they can't sit through an hour surgery and maybe, you know, a shorter procedure is what's really indicated for that day. Got it. Yeah, I sometimes think that patients interpret the question, do you have any medical conditions as what is currently hurting you almost? You know, it's like if their problem is currently being treated by medication, I think that they see it as not a problem any longer. You know, they no longer have high blood pressure because they're taking, you know, a diuretic or whatever they're taking, their high blood, their blood, their high blood pressure medication. Um, so it's just funny how patients do answer that question and it's always good to ask open-ended questions and ask them to elaborate when in doubt. Um, and, any, it, oh, go ahead. No, I was just saying, and then right after that also, do always take a global look. So we're, we can get hyper-focused on, on the teeth or the, or the head and neck. Um, you know, frequently a patient, I've had patients come in with a recent dressing on their knee from their, from their joint replacement uh, that mm -hmm. happened, you know, three weeks ago. And, uh, they've decided they want to go ahead with their dental care. I'm like, so how long ago did you just have your, your knee surgery or your total joint? Patients are getting out of the hospital really quickly and back to activity now. So they feel that they're fine. Uh, and they're, um, they, they may just have had a cardiac procedure or, uh, or, uh, you know, orthopedic surgery. That's going to, you know, immediately stop us from being able to do anything that day. So I always take a look to see if there's anything that sort of like also would prompt me to ask a follow-up question on your exam as we're walking in. That is a great point. And this is related, but unrelated. Like I know that I personally have had the same experience. In fact, recently I had a, an experience like that. And it was one that I consulted with you on because I wasn't sure about the guideline, which is kind of what initiated this podcast actually. Um, but I dismissed that patient too, because it was in the first three months of them having a total joint replacement as well. And he can receive prophylactic dental care yet, you know? Um, so that was... It's, it's interesting how, you know, even though I asked the patient, you know, is there anything new with your medical history, meaning any changes to your medications, newly discovered allergies, any recent surgeries, like I specified that and it was no, because I think in patients' minds, it's just, it's not my head or my neck. So it's not related to my mouth or what you're going to do for me today. So it is good to have that global kind of view of the patient. And similarly, you know, I have looked at patients, you know, someone's arm toward me, someone's ear, they have basal cell, you know, they have squamous cell, they have something going on on their skin. And I'm just like, Hey, what's going on with this? Do you see a dermatologist and get curious about what's going on? And more often than not, just questioning, 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 you, you're going to eventually get to the bottom of it, even if it means referring to a specialist, you know, and it's obviously not in my wheelhouse to treat a squamous cell issue or a derm dermatologic issue, you know, but if we can identify those things, we can save patients from a lot of pain and suffering. And the first thing, you know, our first golden rule is do no harm before do good. And that's what it takes to do no harm is curiosity and the ability to observe and really see our patients globally and as a whole person. So thanks so much, Dr. Sheik, for being here with us today. I really appreciate that you spent time with us.
been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. It was a great conversation. Awesome. Thank you. And uh, thanks for everyone for listening this week. Please feel free to connect with us further by downloading the Mighty Networks app and searching Bulletproof Hygiene. Our live annual summit is also approaching rapidly. It's taking place this year in Vegas on August 11th and 12th. If you want more information on this incredible two-day event, go to bulletproofsummit.com. And there you'll see information on summit topics and sessions offered, as well as group rates and how to register. It's an event for the entire team, from hygienists to doctors to assistants, administrative team, and office managers. We have heard some game-changing and life-changing stories post-prior summits. So we really hope to see you all there, and we'll see you next week on podcast. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Bulletproof Hygiene Podcast. We hope you've had as much fun as we have. Don't forget to click subscribe for a lot more where this came from. We appreciate your support and promise to keep the hygiene gems coming. Keep track of upcoming Bulletproof Hygiene events by visiting bulletproofhygiene.com or download the Mighty Networks app and search Bulletproof Hygiene to stay connected. We want to hear from you.